Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here, joined today by Joel Cooperstein, who is the Senior Vice President of Product Strategy at a company called Learning A to Z, also shortened to LAS, if we do say that that's what we mean. Joel, welcome to Trending in Education. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be with you today. It's great to have you. We always like to get to know our guests right at the top, hear your origin story, your hero's tale. How did you get to this point in your professional life? Yeah, so I started out as an elementary school teacher. I'm based in Southern California, and I started teaching there. But I really followed in the footsteps of my mother and grandmother. My grandmother was a math teacher back in the 1930s in the eastern part of the U.S., and my mother was a kindergarten teacher. And maybe it was fated for me to become a classroom teacher, but from the time I was in high school and college, that was all I wanted to do. Did that for a little while and then found my way into educational publishing at EdTech, where I'd been for the last 25 years or so, working at various basal textbook publishers, large and small supplemental publishers and so forth. But mm. apparently with Learning A to Z and loving that. Yeah. And Learning A to Z is focused on literacy, among other things, which is one of the topics that we're going to be touching on. We're also going to be digging into chat GPT and some of the new tools that are emerging, try to get some of your perspective specifically around writing and how students are learning how to write and how teachers might think about using some of these tools in their classrooms. Before we do that, let's hear a little more about learning A to Z and the role that you have there. And then from there, I think we can jump into chat GPT and, and its impact on writing and all that. Yeah. So Learning A to Z, our mission is to inspire curiosity, ensure comprehension, and then still the joy of learning. We do concentrate quite a bit on literacy, though not exclusively. But what we really care a lot about is helping teachers maximize their impact on students. You know, there are a lot of tech companies that develop materials that are really about self-learning student to screen. We do some of that, but we really care an awful lot about teachers and empowering them to do what they know they need to do in order to be successful with their kids. Teachers are at the center of everything that we do. And it's true to your origin story, getting back in touch with your roots and your, even your family roots, which is interesting. But the world has changed to a topic that has been coming up a lot lately in all of my conversations really is artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. chat GPT specifically. I think this might be the first time I'm recording since the Bing search chatbot has been going through existential crises and odd emotional meltdowns that are creeping some people out. It's very topical. It's very zeitgeisty, as I like to say, to talk about ChatGPT. But you, as a lifelong educator and someone who's now thinking about how do we support teachers, it is an interesting time. The New York City school system is banning access to ChatGPT within its classrooms. It is a bit of a hot button item and folks have different opinions on it. Love to get a little bit of your perspective and then also maybe dig in a little more to how it relates to writing and how it might influence how you operate as a teacher these days. Yeah, for sure. Obviously, we've been thinking a lot about this also. And having been around for a while and seeing new technologies come, maybe arguably this one is the most disruptive. Certainly, you can argue it's the fastest to proliferate, you know, mm -hmm. to get into the zeitgeist, as you said. Yeah. But effectively, it's automation. And we experience automation in all aspects of our life, including education. Mm -hmm. For example, when calculators proliferated, we had to figure out how to fit those in. The kids still need to learn arithmetic if there are calculators. Spell check. The kids still need to learn how to spell. And we yeah. know the answer to those things is, yeah. Mm -hmm. So then the question is, 
how do we use it as an accelerator? How do we build it in? Talking about writing, let's just use an example there. We know that to effectively teach kids writing, showing the models is really important. When we talk about showing effective writing models, give them a rubric for evaluating mm-hmm. their own writing and these model texts. Now you have this practically limited source of model texts where you can ask ChatGPT to write you something and then put it in front of kids and say, how did it do? Look at our rubric, look at the text. How did it do? And that's, that's pretty fun. That's a way to demystify the technology and to leverage it, tease it as an accelerator for learning rather than as a threat. Yeah. And it also, I think, helps address the relevance problem that frequently is present in education. Why do I need to learn this? Why Mm. is this relevant? This is bringing something that everyone hears about. You see it on the news. Everyone's talking about it. Kids talk to each other all the time. So what they're actually, what teenagers are actually doing with ChatGPT, I, I really, I wonder nowadays. Right. But a lot of it is writerly and a lot of the skills and competencies, you know, for me, one of the things that's really emerged is the importance of crafting the right prompt and then being able to edit and respond to what comes back out of it. Can you talk a little bit about how you're thinking about the future of work and how tools like this might connect to it, both from the perspective of students, but also really from the perspective of educators and instructional designers and ed tech? It could really be disruptive. Yeah, but this is a great question. Disruptive, but incrementally paradigm shifting and not necessarily blowing everything up. Here's what I mean by that. Producing anything in life involves three basic steps, developing it, doing some kind of quality assurance, and then deploying it. Like if I'm cooking something, I'm going to make it, I'm going to taste it to see if I like it, and then I'm going to serve it. If I'm coding, I'm going to write my code, I'm going to test my code, and then I'm going to deploy it. If I'm taking a test, I come up with an answer, I check my work, I put it in, and I feel good about it. The variables there are how trusted are my process and how high are the stakes. So if I'm making myself a sandwich, probably not going to taste it before I eat it. But if I'm serving a large group of people, I'm going to make darn sure the thing works. The same thing kind of matters for anything that gets automated. And what we're talking about with ChatGPT is automating the generation of content. Mm-hmm. And it still requires you as the eventual deployer of that content to QA, make sure it's doing what you want it to do. And yeah. that takes pretty sophisticated evaluation skills. So when you talk about editing and prompt crafting and all that sort of things, that's really important. We've been saying this for years in education, that the importance of being able to evaluate content is super critical for learners. And we talked about media literacy and digital literacy and that kind of thing. We just didn't take it as far as maybe we needed to. And actually, I'm kind of hopeful that these generative AI tools catalyze that and get people to realize, holy moly, we got to do more with this because it's here. The gene is out of the bottle and this is happening. These tools will amplify that need and hopefully accelerate how we build the instruction around it, embracing and learning experiences. Yeah. And the way we think about writing, the way we think about creative work, even image generation, there's a lot of controversy around how the original data was scraped and captured and fed Mm -hmm. into the generative models. It's a time where a lot of ethics questions are also being raised around these things. Was the genie and or the toothpaste out of the bottle before it should have been released? You know, you can't really get it back in there, but it's out. And then the question is, how do we teach kids and educators how to work with these tools in new ways? 
Any thoughts on how writing has changed and perhaps more importantly, the assessment of writing? You know, it seems like both of them have been impacted, but I think they're really two separate issues. Right. So this is a really important thing. The idea of cheating comes up all the time whenever you hear conversation around chat GPT and generative AI. And I think this really boils down to instructional design. If we assign tasks that chat GPT can accomplish all by itself, kids are going to cheat. Don't do that. You know, it's up to us to design and assign tasks that require more and different things than what these tools can do. Perfectly fine to use them as part of the work. But if you really want to know what kids know, you have to require them to use it as a tool that gets them as a means to the end, in other words. For example, if you're going to give a kid a test of math facts fluency, they shouldn't use a calculator. It doesn't make any sense because that's something that the calculator can do entirely on its own. That's obvious, but we have to take that analogy and expand it, extend it to what these generative AI tools will be able to do. And it really becomes the responsibility of the designer of the learning experience to make sure that they understand what kids are expected to know and that the task assigned to them actually evaluates that. Yeah. Yeah, it does remind me very much of the calculator analogy, except for writing. And it does feel like this could coincide with another trend, which is the push against homework, where when you're home, we can't control access to tools like ChatGPT. So if you're trying to test someone's ability to generate something, Mm -hmm. giving that to them as homework starts that cat and dog, cat and mouse chase around, are they cheating? What are they doing? But if instead the assessment of their ability to write occurs in class where they're in front of you and you know what tools they have access to, you are assessing something different. I think it also changes perhaps what you would assign a student to do at home. Thoughts on this? I know you you kind of operate in this space, so I'd love to get a little bit of your perspective. There's a lot in there for sure. I think one of the things you have to keep in mind that we have always wanted kids to be able to do, uh, and this just underscores that is to explain their thinking, to talk about why they did what they did or why it's the right thing to do or how they make decisions. Yeah. And that's the same thing here. If you're assigning a generative task for homework, for example, I'm not totally sure whether I'm 100% for or against that. There's a lot of nuances to it. Yeah. But when you bring it back to class, talk about it. And if the goal is to get the child to be able to explain the virtues and benefits or aspects of what they created, what they brought, whether or not they created it, then you can do some evaluative work on what the child knows and doesn't know. If you are solely evaluating, can the kid create a thing, you need to watch them do it. Uh, Otherwise you can't control it. But that just comes with kind of the thoughtful design of the learning task. I don't think it is here nor there, whether or not we should have homework or not. Just that if you assign something that an AI tool can do on its own as homework. You're wasting your time. Right, right. I do like the connection also to media literacy and building exercises, curricula around engaging with these generative tools critically. Also, whether these tools can help teach students critical thinking is the other question, hopefully, because if we can't, the alternative gets pretty concerning because if you're not critically engaging with these tools right now, they will be confident but wrong, much like the internet prior to it is the same thing. If you aren't able to have some critical distance, some interrogating of the data, 
you're at risk of falling prey to misinformation and there's some real dangers there as well. Yeah. So again, not a new thing. We've been talking about this for a long time. Misinformation is rampant and we're always exposed to it. Anything we can do to shine a light on the importance of teaching that the kids is a good thing. You know, I, I wouldn't suggest that these tools will teach critical thinking, but they can necessitate it for sure. Yeah. Uh, and again, it's going to be another motivation for us to take this really seriously and find places for it in our learning days inside schools. Just have to. I mean, maybe what this does is make all the more obvious and salient the importance of this, because whatever has happened to date hasn't mm -hmm. got us there. Yeah. We still aren't really building that in the way we could and should. And maybe something like this will be the, the tailwind that we were looking for. Yeah, it does feel like this is a moment on timelines. People will be referring back, just like people talk about 2007 when the iPhone came out. A little bit of Gutenberg, I feel, is, is useful here too, where suddenly everyone has AI in their pockets. You know, the accessibility of these capabilities is really changing. And that kind of brings me to the other side of the equation, something you talked about at Learning A to Z and even in your experience is working with educators and thinking about other types of roles, whether it's curriculum development, product development, that's all being transformed by these new tools as well. I'd love to get a little bit of your perspective on that. So I think you're asking about how the grown-ups in the equation would leverage these tools in commercial work like I am, or they're in classrooms. Yeah. So from a commercial standpoint, it's still a bit early and we're excited about the opportunities, but step one is embrace it. The idea of trying to, to stop this, to put your thumb in the dike, so to speak, mm -hmm. is futile and unnecessary because there are so many powerful things that this can enable us to do. Like when you think about what this technology does, you can sort of liken it going back to this idea of being a coder. So coders have libraries of code that they'll just pull from and use because why reinvent the wheel? I can automate those processes. Or pilots, for example, flying across an ocean. It used to take four, five, six, seven, eight people to fly a plane because of how cognitively demanding it was. And now it takes, I don't know, two. Because right. much of it is automated. Professionals look for ways to make themselves more effective, more efficient, and technology and automation can do that. So that's going to do some things for people like me and my role. It's going to do some things for teachers. We're talking about creating model texts and that kind of thing. Yeah, that's great. But it shifts the onus to the evaluative part of our work and making sure we're doing that critical thinking. And then also in our role as professional developers, helping teachers understand how to leverage it. I know our instinct is to say, wait a second, put the cork back on the bottle. We probably wish we could a little bit just to give us a little more time to figure out how to optimize it. But yeah. uh, really our first reaction should be, all right, we got ourselves a new toy. How are we going to use this to support our mission, which is really helping kids achieve their potential? Yeah, makes sense. And then what about outside of AI? We are a trend spotting podcast. We're trying to keep our heads up, aware of what's new and emerging in the world around us. But beyond ChatGPT, it's hard to think of anything else these days. Other areas that you're focused on, things that you think our listeners should be paying attention to? Well, you know, as a person who cares deeply about education and educators, everything comes for me back to the fact that learning is a social and holistic process and that technology can provide a means to that end, but it's never the end in and of itself. 
So, you know, when you see things like augmented reality as a technology, some people get really excited about, you know, generative AI is another one. To me, it always comes back to what does that mean for the people in a classroom, in any kind of learning environment? And from where I sit, you maximize learning when these learning experiences span all aspects of a learner's ecosystem, where they are at home, where they're in the classroom, where they are in the wider world. Technology helps with that a lot. It doesn't matter what it is, but it isn't the thing. It isn't mm -hmm. the goal. So I always take blips on the radar screen about technology with a grain of salt and think, what does that mean in a classroom, in a learning environment? And honestly, I think it's fair to say for me, the generative AI has more potential impact than a lot of things I've seen in a long time. Yeah. Arguably more than even touchscreen technology did. Right. Because this really is about generating content and not surfacing it or delivering it. I'm really excited about that. Mm -hmm. But it all has to come back to what does this do for the people in the equation? Yeah, it's going to be a really interesting time to keep your eye on what's emerging. Also, I always like to get guests' perspective on career development, you know, your experience, which is interesting, starting as a teacher and then moving into ed tech and publishing. And there's a great big world out there beyond teaching, but many of those roles really bring you right back to the classroom. Any advice or any thoughts to folks who might be at different points, maybe even earlier in their career around what you've learned and what's been successful for you as a learning professional? Wow, that's a great question. In my experience, I've worked with a lot of educators who are interested in leaving the classroom and getting into commercial work, or I've worked with folks who've already done that and they're thinking, okay, this is what I want to do when I grow up. I'm in business now. I'm in the business of education and I'm proud of that. And this is where I want to be. What I recommend to them is being T-shaped. The idea of being T-shaped is that you've got a specialization. There's something you're good at. You're narrow and deep in it, but you work hard on becoming conversant in different aspects of the organization in which you function so that you can connect with those people. So I may be a curriculum specialist and an instructional designer, but I understand marketing well enough to partner with the folks in that part of the organization, or I understand budgeting and finance well enough to work with those folks. I've had a lot of people in my experience in business suggest, you know, I want to go back and get an advanced degree. I'm going to go get a master's in educational technology, or I go get a master's in educational leadership. And I say to them, that's great. And I'm not telling you not to do that. But if you're in business and this is where you want to be, if you want to be in commercial work, I recommend you expand your knowledge of how that works, almost independent of the educational industry, because you're already narrow and deep there. So if this industry is one of interest, that's something, you know, you start with that passion for education. That's who you are. But to really be effective in the context of a commercial organization, it's important to be able to speak those other languages. So that's one thing I would say for folks who are in this industry. That's a great answer. You know, we're getting closer to time. We haven't looked further ahead because it does feel like we're living in a Black Mirror episode right now. So it's hard to even think five, 10, 20 years down the road. Let's focus specifically on K-12 education because there's been a lot of thinking about it coming out of the pandemic. It became more central to a lot of the thinking really, you know, at a global level. We're now coming back to a new normal of sorts. Short term, maybe we go back to the way things were in some sense, but where do you see things heading further? Did we learn anything? Where are we today? I'm going to tell you where I hope we go. If the pandemic did some things for us as an educational culture, I hope that it did three things. One, helped us recognize the value of technology as a catalyst for learning. 
it helped people realize that the learner's sort of holistic well-being is very, very, very important, probably more important than any particular aspect of the learning objectives they learned to become provisionally with. And then the last one is the centrality of the teacher in this whole equation and how difficult it is to manage the unique environment in the classroom every single day. I got asked a lot about pods and homeschooling expansion, that sort of thing. And is that going to just explode post-pandemic? And my feeling was always, I don't think so. I think families are recognizing how difficult that job is. And now when the doors of the school open and they're going to say, please take my child back and thank you for doing what you do on a daily basis. But to underscore all of that, kind of in the middle of it is this idea of positive learner identity for kids. You know, going back to this idea of well-being, if we do nothing else as parents, as teachers, as a community, we can help our kids feel like they're capable, successful learners at anything, tying shoes, math facts, vector calculus, it doesn't matter. When we as people feel like we can learn, we do. That's something that I think is really important for people to keep in mind as educators, destigmatizing the process of going from not knowing something to knowing something. It's okay. It's fun. It's exciting. Who doesn't love the light bulb moment, right? And getting kids to really recognize that and value it. So those are kind of the three things. I know it's not a terribly high-tech, futuristic viewpoint, right. but I think those are the kinds of things that transcend the tech. I, I really don't care that much about the devices and the code and all that stuff. What are we doing for the people? If that's not what we're thinking about, then what's the point, you know? I'm talking to Joel... Cooperstein, the Senior Vice President of Product Strategy at Learning A to Z. If folks want to find out more about Learning A to Z, where should they go? Well, of course, we have our website. We are learningatoz.com and we are a member of the proud Cambium Learning Group family of companies. Look for our flagship product, Reading A to Z or RAS and RAS Plus, as well as our newly released Foundations A to Z and Writing A to Z, which is germane to exactly what we've been talking about. I'm super excited about those two new products and what they're going to do for the teachers and kids that we serve. Awesome. Fantastic stuff from Joel. If you could one more time into the breach here, provide us with some takeaways based on the conversation that we had with you today. Yeah. Embrace the technology. It's not going anywhere. Figure out how to design tasks that leverage it and really do assess learning for kids. Build positive learner identity. Help kids see themselves as capable learners and they will learn and recognize the vital role that teachers play in the classroom. And let's all do everything we can to help them be successful. Fantastic stuff. Joel, thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. Thank you, Mike. This is great. And for our listeners, hopefully you enjoyed what you heard. If you did, please subscribe, tell your friends, write a review, do all the good things. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education. 